told Eddie I'm going to try something a little different tonight. I'm actually going to turn this off. I'm going to try to use a lapel mic. I want to be able to move a little bit. So if I forget to turn that back on, you know, turn it back on when we get up here to sink. We appreciate everybody being here tonight. Um, I've had some family come in uh, to come and listen tonight, some friends, and I appreciate you all being here and all the visitors that we have tonight as well. Last Sunday, after Brother Randy's lesson, I went out and I, I talked to him in the foyer, shook his hand as everybody does, and I told him when I saw what his sermon topic was in the bulletin, it made me a little nervous. I said, you preached about hell. I said, I'm talking about Satan next week. I said, as soon as I saw your title, I thought I was going to have to go home and change my sermon completely and just start it all over. But um, I told him it actually worked out well that you could almost, I wouldn't say tonight is a continuation of what he talked about last week, but they, they very much go together. And so you could almost consider last week to be part one, maybe tonight be part two. So we're going to look at tonight about the uh, power of Satan. When you think of Satan, what enters your mind? What do you normally think about? I remember as a kid growing up, I, I watched Looney Tunes. I'm sure several of you did the same thing. But any time Daffy Duck or Bugs Bunny or somebody fell down a hole or something, they'd fall and they'd fall and they'd fall and they'd keep falling and they'd land up in hell. And there'd always be this little red man down there, had horns, had a little tail with a little triangle spike on the end of it, had a nice little pitchfork, the little perfect black groomed goatee, and that was Satan. That's what I always pictured Satan as being, is this little, almost like a mythical character. that it's not, He's not real. He doesn't really exist, but he's, he's, a, he's something that we think about. It's a mindset. Brother Randy mentioned last time that the USA Today did a poll back in August of 2009. And they wanted to know how many people believed that there was a hell. And he said that poll showed that 59% of people did not believe in hell. Well, they believed in heaven. They believe there's a good place, but they don't want to believe there's a bad place. Well, four months before that poll was done, the Barna Group did, also did a poll. It was in April of 2009. They wanted to know how many people believed in Satan. 59% said that they didn't believe in hell. 67% said they don't believe in Satan. They don't believe Satan is real. So that means you have some people that believe there is a hell without a Satan. To me, they've got to go, i tell you what, this thing's getting a little scruffy. I'll just turn the microphone back. I'll try to stay pushed in. So you have some people then that believe that there is a hell, but they don't believe then that there's a Satan, which doesn't really make sense. So is Satan this little mythological creature, this idea that really just embodies evil, or is Satan real? Is he a mindset, or is it a real being that we have to deal with? Let's think for a second that if Satan is not real, what kind of consequence does that have? Think back to the story of Adam and Eve. If Satan's not real, if Satan's just a mindset, it's just this concept that embodies evil, what happens to the story of Adam and Eve? Doesn't that nullify that story? How can that story possibly be real? If the serpent, if Satan never really entered the garden to talk to him, maybe that story is just made up as well. And if that's made up, doesn't that throw the entire Bible into question? If one story in there is fake that was made up, how then can we believe every other story that's told in the Bible? 
Turn with me over to John chapter 17. And I've mentioned before when I stand up here, I, I like to turn to passages. I like to go through them. I want us to go together. There's going to be some passages we're going to look at that I'm not really going to turn to and read, but there's several that we're going to spend a little bit of time in tonight. I encourage you to get your Bibles out and let's turn to them together. John chapter 17. Jesus is here praying. This is one of the prayers that we've heard from him many times. We've heard many sermons about. He first prays for himself. He then prays for his disciples and then for the believers. There's a comment that he makes in here about where he's praying for the disciples. John chapter 17, let's read in verse 15 what he says. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Notice first what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, I want you to keep them from evil. I didn't say, I want you to keep them from temptation. He said, I want you to keep them from the evil one. That's a singularity. There is a single beam that Jesus wanted God to help keep the disciples from. That's a thing. That's Satan. If Satan's not real, why would Jesus have prayed, keep them from the evil one? He could have just said, keep them from evil. The fact is, Satan is real. Why would Satan want us not to think that he's real? Why is that? I mean, is there any reason you can think of that Satan wants us to believe that he's just this concept? That he's just this, this idea that embodies evil? If there's something that we don't believe is real, are we really concerned about it? You know, in 1 Peter, we're told that Satan is a roaring lion going about to see who he's going to devour. I see a lion out in my yard. It is sitting there just kind of eyeing me, starts walking towards me. If I think that that lion is just a figment of my imagination, that it's just an hallucination of some type, am I going to be concerned with that lion? No. I might look at it and think it's neat looking. Like, was there a lion in my yard for? But I'm going to turn around and go back to doing what I was doing. I'm going to pay it no attention at all. That's exactly what Satan wants us to believe about him because if we don't believe he's real, then we're not concerned about what power he has or what he can do to us in our lives. Turn with me to Acts chapter 26. Acts 26, and this is the passage that Brother Glenn read for us just a moment ago. And I appreciate the way he puts it into context so everybody understands what it is that we're looking at. Paul is standing before King Agrippa at this point, and he's retelling his story. He's retelling um, kind of where he came from, how he was converted on that, the road to Damascus. And so we look at verse 15. This is Paul is retelling the story. So when he starts here, this is him talking to Jesus. It says, So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, So here's Jesus' reply. It says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you. Listen to this. I open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Have we ever really stopped to think about what is this power of Satan? I think we all understand, at least have a good understanding, of what the power of God is. We hear it talked about a lot. We hear sermons about it. We hear classes about it. But what is this power of Satan? that Paul is supposed to be turning people from. 
before we can really, I think, delve into what this true power is, I think there's an understanding that we really have to come to, and we have to understand what is sin. So let's look for a second at what sin is. You know, we live in a culture today that they want to, they as in just people in general, want to look at sin and try to put it in categories. They want to try to have some kind of legalistic battle about uh, the minds and try to debate this and that. And Adam really talked about it well this morning about people go to certain passages and it lists all these sins and we try to say, well, I don't do those things. I'm fine. I don't commit adultery. I don't fornicate. I'm not a drunkard. I, I don't murder people. I'm good. I don't do that stuff in that list. But that's a misunderstanding of what sin is. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 3. I think there's a lot simpler explanation than just trying to look at a category of what sin is. And stay here at Romans 3. We're going to look at this verse, but we're going to continue looking at some more verses here in just a moment. Romans chapter 3, let's look at verse 9 first. It says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. All right, let's stop there for a second. That word sin that's used there, the very last word of verse number 9, that is the Greek word, make sure I say this right, hamartia. That's the word hamartia. The word hamartia is an archery term that archers wanted to use to say, when I'm shooting at the target, I didn't hit the bullseye. I missed the mark. Has anybody ever heard that before? Sin is simply missing the mark. That's where that concept comes from, is from this word hamartia. It's just, I didn't hit the bullseye when I'm an archer. And that is true, but have we as Christians taken that concept so far that we've truly now begun to misunderstand what sin really is? I can miss the bullseye and still hit the target. So if I'm sitting here shooting at a target and I see this nice little red dot right in the center, and I see the white lines around it and the circles around it, and I shoot and I hit one of those white lines off center a little bit. That's hammer to you. I'm off the target. I'm off the mark. I've missed a little bit. But I'm not so bad. I hit the target. There's a lot of people who can't even hit the target. Isn't that missing the mark? Isn't that what Adam talked about this morning? He said, only sins. I don't do those sins. I don't murder people. I don't commit adultery. What's the big deal? That's a fundamental misunderstanding of what they're talking about here with sin. When I shoot and I'm an archer, in this concept of sin, not only am I missing the target, I have turned my back on the target and I shot that direction. I have completely turned my back from the direction I'm supposed to be going and I've shot somewhere else. So yeah, I missed the mark, but I missed it a whole lot more than what I think most of us normally think of. Let's continue reading there in Romans chapter 3. Let's read verse 9 again, but we're going to read down through verse 18 now. It says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. This is what I want us to start listening to, starting in verse 10. Listen to how it describes sin. It says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
does that sound like somebody who is shooting at a target and they just miss the bullseye, but they still hit the target? That, to me, sounds like somebody who turned and shot their arrow the wrong direction. That's what sin is. So for us to truly understand this power that Satan has, we have to understand we're not just missing a little bit what God wants us to do when we sin. And it doesn't matter what sin it is. There's not these categories of sin that, well, I just told a little white lie. I was actually trying to tell it to keep from hurting somebody's feelings. It's not that big of a deal. I didn't go out and do this, this, or this. Either way, my arrow went the wrong direction. All right. Now if we understand that, let's look at the power that Satan has. And these are powers, and, and again, kind of like Adam said this morning, the list that he gave that we're supposed to do to put on Christ in our lives after we become Christians, it's not an all-inclusive list. This isn't going to be all-inclusive tonight. These are going to be things, though, that I hope open our eyes to some of the tactics that can be used by Satan to try to get at us in our lives. So let's begin. We've got several we're going to look at. Some we'll go through fairly quickly. Some we'll spend a little bit more time on. So the first power of Satan, number one. Satan has been called several times in the Bible the great deceiver. Satan's a liar. Satan will deceive us at any opportunity he gets. First off, he wants us to misunderstand what sin is. If we don't understand what sin truly is, then we quit caring about the sin that we commit because we don't think it's that bad. That's deception from Satan. He wants us to not believe that he's real. If we don't believe that he's real, we stop worrying about what he can do. Because, I mean, what can something that's not real do to me? I'm not going to worry about it. That's deception from Satan. Turn with me over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We're going to start looking around about verse 37. But just kind of put in context what we're looking at right now. At the beginning of verse 8, this is where you had the lady who was caught... Um, in sin, they were going to stone her. Jesus said, those who are without sin to cast the first stone. And then after that, he gets in a discussion and an argument with the Pharisees. This is part of that discussion that he's having with the Pharisees. All right, so in verse 37, and this is Jesus talking to him. It says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Keep that in mind. So he's saying, look, the stuff that I'm doing that you're accusing me is wrong, I'm doing it because of things I've done and seen with my father. His father is God. They're saying, look, you don't believe me. You want to kill me, and that's because you're doing what you've seen with your father. Now listen to what their response is. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. So if that's true then, then what Jesus has said is you're wanting to kill me because that's what Abraham would have wanted to do. That doesn't make sense. So is it possible then that Abraham is their father? Verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. So he said, you're not Abraham's children. Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. So again, he said, you're still doing what your father did. You said Abraham's your father. That's not what Abraham did. He wasn't trying to kill me. So Abraham's not your father, but you're still doing the work of your father. Let's see how they respond. Then they say to him, 
We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. What's that mean? We're not born of fornication. Basically, what they took it to mean is, look, if you're saying that the person I claim is my father is not really my father, that means I was born out of wedlock. That means I was born due to fornication. So you're claiming I have a father somewhere else. And they took great offense to that. They said, look, we are not from fornication. Our God is, our Father is God. How's Jesus respond? Verse 42. It says, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your Father, the devil. You are of your Father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and a father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So they're doing the work of their father, which is Satan. He's a liar. They're out trying to kill him. Jesus says, I do the work of my father. In verse 45 it says, but because I tell the truth. So Jesus is telling the truth, which is his father. God is truth. He's telling the truth. They're doing the work of Satan. What Satan does is the exact opposite of God. Satan had deceived these men, these Pharisees. He had convinced them that Jesus was not who he said he was. And due to that lie, they were trying to kill him. But they're living based on a lie. If God is truth, that target out in front of us is God. That's truth. A lie is the opposite. They shot their arrow that way. They weren't just missing the mark a little bit. This was sin that they were caught up in due to deception from Satan, who was their father. All right, second power of Satan. This has been debated a lot. I've heard it many times of where does sin come from? Satan is the originator of sin. Satan has caused sin. Satan created sin. Satan created evil. We're not going to turn to it, but I, I encourage you to go take a look at this at um, some point on your own. Over in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 19, there's a passage there that's talking about one of the kings. Is, I believe his name is pronounced Tyree. T-Y-R-E, um, I think is how it's spelled. But as he goes through and talks about him, but the passage is explaining somebody who sounds a lot like Satan. And so many people believe, many uh, theologians believe that this passage is actually a reference about Satan. It's just using it talking about this king. And it says that he was perfect at one time. But he was perfect until iniquity was found in him. And at that point it caused his fall. It sounds a lot like the description of Satan, what happened to him being cast out of heaven. So Satan at one time was perfect. Now that sounds weird, but didn't God create a universe that was perfect? Is that not what we're told in Genesis, that he looked back and he saw it and it was perfect? It says Satan was perfect until there was iniquity found in him. His greed, wanting to have what God had. That was the origination of evil the origination of sin. So Satan, one of his powers is, he created this. 
He created evil. He created sin. If there's anybody that knows how to control it and to manipulate it, it's Satan. The third one. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. The third power that Satan has, he's opportunistic. If Satan sees an opportunity, he's not just going to pass it by. He's like, eh, I don't want to mess with her right now. I'm tired. Satan has been attacking us for years, decades, centuries, millennia. This has been his work. This is what he's all about. If he sees an opportunity, he's not going to pass it by. He's going to take it. There's a very good example of that talked about in 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 3. Let's begin reading in verse 3, and I'll try to explain a little bit of this as we go. Or excuse me, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Remember, this is Paul speaking in a letter to the Thessalonians. It says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. All right, so Paul and the group that he's with, and it talks about, back in the very first verse of chapter 1, who all's in his group. But it says that when they couldn't stand it anymore, they wanted to send Timothy along. Basically, they've got held up where they're at, and they can't get to the Thessalonians. They're longing to get there to see them, to talk to them. And when they couldn't stand it anymore that they couldn't get there, they went ahead and sent Timothy ahead of them. Because they wanted Timothy to go and to check on them and to encourage them in their faith. Why does Paul have any concern about how their faith is holding up? Let's go on and keep reading. Verse 3. That no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. All right, so what Paul's concerned about is that the Thessalonians are going to hear about the affliction, the persecution, the torment that Paul and his group are going through and they're, con they're concerned that that word is going to get back to the Thessalonians and it's going to discourage them. They're going to think, wait, if these guys really have God on their side, if they're, if they're really who they say they are, why are they being treated like this? Would they not have the power to get out of this, be smart enough to avoid this stuff? And he's concerned that they're now going to start losing their faith because of that. So he went, sent Timothy ahead of them to check on them to make sure they were okay. Verse 5. It says, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. The tempter had tempted them. Who is the tempter? That's Satan. Satan knew that there was an opportunity where their faith might be weakened just a little bit. Paul knew that. He recognized it, and he knew Satan was not going to sit on the sideline and watch. He was going to take the opportunity and go and try to start attacking the souls of the Thessalonians. So he sent Timothy on ahead of them to go and talk to them, to encourage them, to make sure they were okay. But that's not the only point. Let's back up a little bit into chapter 2, verse 17. Why was Paul and his group held up? Let's start reading chapter 2, verse 17. It says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, so their heart's still with them, they're just not physically there, endeavored more eagerly to see, you, to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. <clears throat> Satan created this entire situation. He knew that if, he could get, if Paul was away from the Thessalonians, 
And they weren't there with somebody to kind of be an anchor to them. That Paul is now left for a little while, just physical presence, his heart was still with them, but he knew he could create chaos. So he hindered Paul and his group from being able to get back to the Thessalonians. Now the Bible doesn't go into details about what happened. But it says he was held up, and in chapter 3 it talks about the afflictions they were going through, the, um, the persecution they were going through. Is that what Satan created? Possibly. So he held this one group up to prevent them from getting over here, and then went over here to this group, this group and was trying to attack their souls. Satan saw an opportunity and he took it. He saw Paul away from him. Satan is not going to pass up a chance that he sees to get at us as Christians. The fourth power that Satan has. He holds people in bondage. Turn with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 23. It says, But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and, then they, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. So as Christians, we're supposed to go and encourage people. We're supposed to be patient with them. That We're supposed to try to help people who it says are ignorant about the gospel because they've been ensnared by the devil, by Satan. He's holding them basically to do his will. Satan has the power to enslave us and hold us in bondage. Now, maybe not physically, but can take grab of our hearts if we give him any type of a foothold. He's going to grab it and he's going to wrap around us as tight as he can to hold us, not let us get anywhere away from him. If he does keep us captive, we will be doing his will. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a minute. The fifth power of Satan. Satan hinders salvation. Now note I didn't say he prevents salvation. Satan doesn't have the power to prevent salvation, but he does have the power to hinder it, to get in the way of it. And we'll look at some examples of how he did that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's start reading in verse 1. We'll read down for a few verses. It says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have... Received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So they said, look, we're not, we're not trying to trick you guys. We're, we're telling you the truth here. We're doing it very openly. We're not hiding anything. But listen to what he says in verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, so even if there is some kind of hidden thing here, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. The God of this age is another reference to Satan. So it says in verse 3, But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of, the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. 
Satan is do, will do whatever he believes is necessary to keep us from believing the truth. So these people who do not know the gospel, that they do not believe, Paul tells them, look, we're not hiding anything from you. But if there's anything that is hidden, it is Satan who is doing that. He's the one keeping these people blinded. We have to figure out a way to get through to them. You know, we're told over in Luke chapter 8, we hear the parable of the sower. We've all heard many sermons about it. In Luke chapter 8, it goes through and it talks about the explanation of it. So as the farmer goes out and he starts spreading seed, and you have some seed that, that falls by the wayside, it says that, that birds will come and take it. Well, what it says in, in Luke chapter 8 in the explanation is, that's Satan. You have people who have had the gospel preached to them. It falls on their hearts. Satan knows what will happen if he doesn't step in and try to intervene. That that seed will take root in somebody's heart and will start to grow and will start to flourish and will start to change them. He goes in as quick as he can and he tries to snatch that seed. He tries to take it away before it can take root. He's getting in the way of salvation if he can. We're also told over in Matthew chapter 13. We've heard the parable of the of the snares, or excuse me, of the tares. You have an enemy who has come out at night, and he sowed tares to this whole field of wheat. They get up in the morning, they see this and say, Master, what are we going to do? Somebody has sowed tares. Should we just cut everything down and start over? It says that Satan is the one who has gone out and done that. He's the enemy in the night who has come and has spread tares throughout this field of wheat. He is putting evil around us to try anything he can to try to choke us out, to try to kill our spiritual lives. I mean, just imagine the evil that goes on in this world around us. Think of what we see on television now. Think of marketing that we see. Think of the way that other people around us act. The evil is around us everywhere. It is Satan who is putting that there, trying his best to get at us as Christians. So if we don't think that Satan has a foothold in this world, that he is real, that he is trying everything he can to get at us. We're just blinded to it. The Bible tells us that's true. Number six, stay in 2 Corinthians, but jump over to chapter 11. Satan is a master of disguise. And some of you maybe may know where we're going with this. But 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Start reading in verse 12. It says, But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things which they boast. All right, that's a lot of words right there. Basically what Paul is saying is, I'm going to continue doing what I do. I'm going to do it to the best I can. That's him being an apostle, going out and trying to preach, trying to convert people. But he says, I'm going to do it to try to cut off the opportunity from these others over here who are trying to come in and take the same glory that they think that we have as apostles. They're trying to step in and say, look at me, look at me, I'm an apostle. I'm doing the same thing these guys over here are doing. That's basically what he's saying. All right, so let's continue in verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. So he's, he's describing false teachers. So he's going to try to cut them off. Verse 14. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Satan is not this little red man. 
that has this perfectly groomed goatee with horns and a pitchfork and everything else he carries around. That's not what Satan is. Satan is probably the smoothest talking, best dressed preacher you'll ever see. He's not somebody who's going to come. Because if I see a little red man walking up to me, that's Satan, go away. I'm not going to pay any attention to him. But if I see somebody here that's smooth, that's well-liked, that's popular, that, man, it's easy to listen to, it tickles my ears, Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. He knows how to disguise himself in a way that will be acceptable to us, that we will be easily deceived by him, and then we'll accept what he's telling us. It's very important that we know this word. The way that we can pinpoint somebody who's doing that, that is a false teacher, that is what the Bible calls as a false prophet, is if we know what the word of God says and we're able to tell their line. What they're saying is not the truth. All right, last one we're going to look at. Last power of Satan that I'm going to talk about is he has the power to invade our hearts. They may think, Jonathan, that's a little extreme, isn't it? I mean, he can do all this other stuff around me, but you're talking about he's getting inside of me at this point. Isn't that just a little bit out there? Let's look at it. What does the Bible say? John chapter 13. Turn over to that with me. And while you're getting there, I think too many times, and, and this may be part of the, of the world has pictured Satan as, again, being this little mythological creature over here. It's not real. We underestimate him. We don't really truly, I hate to use the word, but maybe the best word is we give respect for the power that he has. Not in respect that we want to worship it, that we're in awe of it, but in respect that we're paying attention to it. The same way you respect a gun. The same way you respect a car that you're driving. You understand the power that it has, and you understand the damage that it can cause if it falls into the wrong hands. You respect it, and you're careful with it. I think too many times we don't give Satan that same respect, and we don't truly understand what he can truly do. So John chapter 13. Let's begin reading verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Listen to this. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Satan put it in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. Satan planted that seed inside of Judas. Now, had Judas been living the model perfect life as a Christian, as a follower of Christ before that, would Satan have had the opportunity to have planted that seed? I'm going to say no. Now, I wasn't there. The Bible doesn't talk about that. We know what happened. But would Satan have been able to get it, Judas's heart, otherwise? I find it hard to believe that he would have. And there's reasons for that. It, and we'll get to those in a minute, but we have to try to understand. Now, there, there's just seven different powers that we've talked about now. And like I said, that's not an all-inclusive list. And he has the power of disguise, the power of deception, the power to try to manipulate situations, to surround us with evil. How does he have this power? How does he have the power to plant this seed into Judas Iscariot's heart to make him betray Jesus? 
Satan only has the power over us that we allow him to have. We have control of ourselves. Satan doesn't have control of us. We have the power to control how much influence he has on us. A good example of that is look at the life of Job. Turn with me over to Job chapter 19. We'll read in just a minute. But Job, Satan was told by God he could do anything he wanted to to Job. Anything but kill him. He took his possessions. He took his fortune. He took his children. He made his wife turn his back on him. He took his health away from him. Everything you could imagine to be done to a single individual other than kill him, Satan did it to Job. But did Job give Satan the opportunity to plant that seed in his heart to turn his back on God the same way that Judas Iscariot did? Read with me in Job chapter 19. Let's read in verse 23, and this is Job talking here. It says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. This is after all this stuff had happened to Job. And that's still the attitude that he had. That's the reason Satan was not able to take hold of his heart and do anything to Job. He wasn't able to plant that seed which started to grow and started to become just bitter and angry at God. But then Job makes probably one of the greatest proclamations that I've ever seen, that I've ever heard an individual make in terms of their dedication to God and their commitment to resist the power of Satan. Stay in Job. Turn over to chapter 27. Job chapter 27. Again, this is an attitude that we as Christians must have. Let's begin reading verse 1. It says, Moreover, Job continued his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my justice? And the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. As long as my breath is in me, In the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Far be it from me that I should say you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast, and I will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. That's the reason Satan was not able to get to Job. The attitude he had, the understanding that it doesn't matter all this other stuff that's going on in my life. I stay dedicated to God. That's it. I can lose everything I have, including my family, but I am not about to lose my soul. If we don't have that attitude as Christians, we're doomed. Because we're just giving Satan a foothold to grab a hold of. Make no mistake about it. We're in a war on this earth. We are caught up in a battle that has gone on for ages and will continue to go on until this earth ends. There is no sitting on the sideline during this war. The battle lines are very clearly drawn. We're told in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10, it says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the wiles of the devil. It's described as a battle. The writers of this great book, what the Holy Spirit inspired them to write, 
They didn't try to beat around the bush about it. I think we as Christians reading it sometimes maybe don't take it as seriously as we should, myself included. This is a war. We are on one side or the other. We are told in the Bible, if you're not with me, you're against me. That means if you're not standing on God's side fighting with them, you're back here standing on Satan's side fighting with him, whether you think you are or not. Do we know our enemy? Do we know the power he, that he has? It's the best way to fight a war. You have to know your enemy almost better than they know themselves. The Bible has told us everything we need to know about Satan, what he can do, that the power that he has. Do we watch for these things in our lives? Are we trying to look for areas that would give, give Satan power over me and then try to stop it, try to put, a, put an end to it? This isn't a battle that we can get out of. This isn't a battle that we can retire from. As we get older in our lives and we think, man, I've been fighting this battle for years. I'm tired. I'm going to go sit down for a minute. I'm going to take off the breastplate. I'm going to lay down this shield for my armor of God. I'm going to lay down my sword of the Spirit. And I'm going to let somebody else fight for a little while. That's when Satan's got you. There is no getting out of this, no matter what the age is. Younger people, there's no waiting to get in this war. This war is raging, and you will be pulled in it one way or the other. And there will be a side that you are on. There is no standing in the middle thinking, well, I'm still, I'm still a teenager. I'm still in my young 20s. And was, it doesn't matter. We're in this war to fight. So how do we defeat this enemy? We're told over in 1 John chapter 4, that we defeat him by abiding by the word of God. It's right here. When we read about the whole armor of God, it tells about all these defensive pieces that we have. But how many offensive pieces does it tell us that we have? One. We have the sword of the Spirit. We have the word of God right here. That is our sword. Now, don't think it's any light thing because we only have one weapon. It's the only weapon we need. That weapon can defeat Satan in an instant. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, how did Jesus fight off Satan through those three temptations? He quoted him scripture. He used the sword of the Spirit. He used the word of God to fight in that battle. There is good news about it, though. Satan has been rendered powerless. By Jesus going to that cross, his blood being shed, Satan no longer has the power to take control of our lives. Jesus created this opportunity for us to get away from that, for us to put that sin away from us. Like I said, we're going to be on a side one way or the other. There is no middle ground on this. If you think that you haven't chosen a side because you've never made the decision to become a Christian, you're on the other side. It's very simple how we become a Christian. The Bible is very plain about it. It's obedience to his word. It's obedience to the gospel. We're told that we must believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. We have to take this arrow that we've been shooting the other direction, the sin in our life, and we've got to turn around and start shooting it back at the target we're supposed to be shooting at. We've got to recognize this sin, repent of it, and turn our arrow back the direction it's supposed to be going. Change the things that we're doing in our lives. Stop doing the old stuff. Put away the old man. 
We must confess before others that we do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we must come into contact with the blood of Christ through baptism and water. And as Adam mentioned this morning, the Church of Christ gets a bad rap a lot of times because so many people just try to get somebody dunked in water and get them wet. And there's some that probably do that. But the water has nothing to do with it. It could have been anything. It could have been sand. It could have been mud. It didn't matter. The fact is it's simple obedience to what Christ told us to do, period. That's how we go from being on Satan's side in this battle to being on Christ's side in that battle. So if you've never become a Christian, if you've never made that decision to fight on God's side, do that tonight. There's a whole family here that wants to support you. We want to put our arms around you. We want to welcome you into the family of Christ. Maybe you've been in the battle and you just got tired from it and you've decided you're going to sit on the sideline and watch for a little while. That means, one, you've opened yourself up as vulnerable to Satan. And two, for him to pull you onto his side of the battle. Get back in the fight. Don't set this out. Make things right in your life. So if either of these be your need, we ask you to come as we stand and we sing.